0: Hello. Today we have Corinne Malcolm. And Corinne is a professional ultra runner and coach. She has spent a lot of time in the research world as an environmental physiologist. So what that means is she knows a lot about what happens to us as athletes in terms of the environment. So what it's like with heat, uh, altitude, and all of the surrounding elements that happen to us, Corinne knows how to navigate. And right now is a perfect time to have a discussion with her because it's the middle of summer and it's hot. So we talk about that, how to acclimate to the heat and perform your best with those uh, hot elements. We also talk about the best way to figure out your own personal hydration. And we also do a deep dive on cramps toward the later end of the episode, which is really informative and super helpful. So I implore you to stick around to learn about cramps and how you can figure out why they happen and potentially how to avoid them so i uh, really enjoyed this conversation Corinne, super smart was uh, very helpful shared a ton and i think you will enjoy it as well so let's find out and today we have corinne malcolm corinne what's going on how are you today
1: I am good. It's a weird, sunny day in San Francisco. It's our foggy season, so it's pretty nice outside right now.
0: Yeah, you guys are kind of flipped, right? Like it's nice most of the time of the year, but in the summer, it's yeah. not as nice.
1: Yeah, so we we call him Carl, Carl the Fog. He's got a name. Um, really? That's, yeah, our, that's
0: our dog's name is Carl.
1: That's so awesome. Is so it with <laughs> a C or the K?
0: It's with a C. What about yeah. the Fog?
1: This is Carl with a K. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so our summers are actually pretty cold in the city proper but you can go 20 minutes in any direction and it can be 20 degrees warmer which is pretty awesome um we live in the fog bank we live right by the ocean um so it's really kind of rare actually to be mid-july and have it be sunny out right have now the
0: sunshine. Well, congrats. Yeah. It's, a, it's a big day for that. <laughs> um, well, cool. I'm really excited to kind of dive in and talk about some ultra training. We're going to dive into the nuts and bolts of, uh, things like heat acclimatization and hydration. Um, but first I have a couple of random questions. We call this the rapport round. Are you ready? Yes. So on your Instagram and on like your website, you're, you're self-proclaimed an ultimate cookie monster. I, I don't know what that means in your context, but like, what's your favorite kind of cookie?
1: my oh man i've got lots of favorite cookies i think traditionally like an oatmeal scotchy so an oatmeal cookie with butterscotch chips in it Mm. is like a taste of like childhood um you know classic chocolate chip cookie can't really go wrong i'm not i'm not a healthy cookie person though i like i've got a sweet tooth i like dessert i like them to be like real real
0: desserts yeah like what would a healthy cookie like, do you have an idea Like, is like those packaged ones, like the protein cookies, or what would be considered even a healthy cookie? Because e- right. even like a healthy cookie, I'm like, if you're if you're already there, just do the real cookie.
1: Yeah. So, <laughs> I feel like, healthy cookies are, are like really dry, or they like are like one half muffin, like they've had stuff added to them, like banana or zucchini, oh. and so they're no longer like a cookie. I like chewy, crispy cookies, not like cakey cookies. So I'm a maybe I'm a cookie snob, not a cookie monster.
0: Well, you've thought about it. You've clearly thought about it quite a bit. So <laughs> I appreciate the the details on that. My my girlfriend Amy, she likes cookies that are like dry and like uh like almost like shortbready type, I guess.
1: You you could there's they are a good shortbread like they've, they've got enough butter in them. They definitely are are okay.
0: See, I know what you're doing, but I disagree. I disagree with you both. Cuz <laughs> I think you're right. Like chocolate chip just chewy chocolate chip cookie, that's, what else do you need?
1: It's the staple, I will say, so I am a cookie monster in part because um, back in the day when I left college to ski race full time to do biathlon, so shooting and skiing, which we can dive into at any point, um, my coaches needed me to find an outlet besides training to deal with my like stress or anxiety or anger or whatever it was, and so I started baking. Uh And so I was living in an Olympic training center baking just so many chocolate chip cookies. And it was nice because I lived with like the bobsled and luge athletes. And so I was just feeding the bobsledders cookies because I couldn't eat all of them. And so I feel like that's like where the cookie love started.
0: You must have been the best roommate ever. And uh, I kind of understand the outlet for baking for cooking. To me, cooking is like stressful. Like if there, it seems like it's really time intense and like, I just get all out of sorts from it. But baking, it's like, okay, you can kind of take your time, just make sure everything's measured and right. And just, it's more soothing on, on my end, I think. Was that,
1: yeah.
0: was that why you got into baking? Or did you just, were you just like, I just like cookies, so I'm going to start baking?
1: <laughs> no, I think it was like, I needed something to do with that time. Like when I got anxious or something, or angry or sad, I like, instead of going for a run, because I was already training a lot um they're like you can't just go run whenever you have feelings you have to do something else so cookies were like or baking anything really I would just ask people like oh what's your favorite flavor or your favorite ingredient or something and then I would make something based off of that and so and then cookies just became like a staple um of all that and it is it's much more relaxing I feel like than making like full meals or cooking there's definitely Mm. a science to it you know, you can definitely make like mess up baked goods. So sometimes I won't tell people what the final product is supposed to be because (laughs) if your pie crust fails, all of a sudden it's a crumble or (laughs) there are ways to like, it still tastes good. because It's like butter and sugar and and whatever's in there, but it's, it doesn't necessarily look, it doesn't present always super well. So I think that's like Hmm. the flexibility of cooking is if you mess up, you can kind of, or baking, if you mess up, you can kind of rebrand it to be something different
0: because I hear people say those things like, oh, baking is much more precise, right? Like it needs to, you need to measure things out. And is it so that it does present a certain way or is it because of the taste?
1: I think it's probably both, right? Like, I think part of it is like, there's a science behind baking. Like you need a certain amount of oil to be absorbed by a certain amount of flour. Um, that's why like gluten-free baking is actually really, really hard. I've done a little bit of it and it's, it can be, you can't just like replace flour with gluten-free flour because that gluten does stuff and the oil Mm -hmm. you're adding to it or the moisture that you're adding to it has to balance out with that Mm -hmm. so i think it's like part of its presentation part of its flavor and then like the more complicated you know cookies are like safe they're pretty easy they're pretty hard to mess up unless you mess up like your tablespoon teaspoon like salt ratio or something possible
0: that can happen (laughs)
1: <laughs> otherwise you know it's it's I think a safe easy thing so it's kind of like I can do them like mindlessly now and it's just kind of a nice way to like unwind
0: in a way huh it's such an interesting way to kind of come about it and I, I guess it makes sense that you can't like your competitive outlet also being your stress reliever I could see how I could get into some troubled territory.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, I was as a as a skier It's kind of like, like cycling a lot of ways where you're training just a ton of hours every week. And so I couldn't afford to continue to add, you Mm. know, half an hour, hour long runs whenever I like, had feelings to get out. Yeah, I think on a on a recreational level on a just like using exercise as a stress management tool. I mean, The science is there. It's very, very positive. Just being outside has huge positive impacts on your health and well-being. Um, But as a a elite-level athlete trying to make an Olympic team, and you're already training 20 to 30 hours a week, you can't really add another couple hours of activity without it needing to come out somewhere else.
0: Yeah, you need to account for it somehow, and, yeah, it just can't can't happen that way. So cookies are as good of a way as I could imagine to to spend that time so i do want to talk about um biathlon like tell us a little bit about that and like tell me why it's really cool
1: okay so biathlon is a sport where i think it gets really popular every four years Uh when there's a winter olympics um because we see it on tv and we're like oh this is a really interesting thing um but it's not a big sport in the u.s in general it's much more popular in europe um, particularly in Eastern Europe, um, but Eastern and Western Europe. So biathlon is the combination of cross-country skiing and shooting. So marksmanship. Um, it kind of is akin to like rodeo sports or lumberjack sports, where it was developed as a way for um, like militaries to compete against one another. And hmm. so winter, like winter mountain training um, in Scandinavia and other countries would you know, it became a competition outlet of combining cross country skiing or the physical fitness required to do an endurance sport with something like marksmanship. Um, and it's evolved a lot over the last 20 years, 25 years. It's probably longer now. It's probably more like 40. Um, it's evolved a lot. It used to be, you know, shooting glass targets. Um, and they used to only classic ski. Now we only, and classic skiing is like traditional, Skiing, it looks kind of like running um, versus skate skiing, which is more like hockey skating. So kind of that lateral movement. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's evolved a lot. Like now the the targets are electronic, i.e. you're not hitting a paddle and having the paddle come up. It's it can sense that it was hit and then it shows that it was hit. Um, But it's still shooting a real gun. So people now they cross country ski with a 22. So a fairly small caliber um, rifle on their backs which I think is why when we see it every four years, we're like,
0: whoa, <laughs> doing, what Where are they going with that? Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. So I think it's, you know, it's a really cool sport. It people describe it akin to like running up a flight, you know, running up several flights of stairs and then trying to thread um, a piece of string through the eye of a needle because you do, you're skiing really, really hard. And then you're expected to come into a, a range um, and hit, targets that are the size of like a silver dollar when you're lying down pretty small to um, the size of about a cd when you're standing um Mm -hmm. at 50 yards and so you are your heart rate's up you come into the range and you're expected to hit five targets with five bullets otherwise you're penalized so it's like it's this really interesting combination of this physical task with this mental and skill-based task.
0: Does that end the competition with the shooting or what's that time domain like? Like how long are you skiing? And then like do you go into the shooting and then keep going? Or is it over then?
1: Yeah. So it's kind of I don't know anything about it. I'm yeah, just no, I, yeah. I know what it looks no, no, no. like. Yeah. <laughs> so um we have a number of different styles of racing. Um, the shortest being what's called a sprint, but it's not like we would think like a hundred meters. It's um seven and a half K for women and ten K for men. And those races only they're called a sprint because they only have two shooting stages so they're always shooting stages are always preceded and then you go and ski again afterwards so in a sprint race you would ski for women two and a half kilometers come in and shoot prone so lying down you leave ski another two and a half kilometers come into the same range shoot standing and then you would leave there and ski another two and a half kilometers to the finish so they're like set up in these big stadiums where like the stadium is set around the range and then there are loops that leave the stadium depending on the race course that are about 2k to 5k long is the longest loop um and generally speaking most of the races um there's a couple different varieties one like one that is two stage and some that are four stage and generally speaking the most common format is that you have to ski a 150 meter penalty loop as soon as you leave the range for every shot that you missed.
0: Oh, so it's a physical penalty. It's not at the, it's not capped at the end. Okay. Yeah.
1: So there is one, there's one style of race that is the longest of it. It's 20 K for men and 15 K for women. And in that race it's four shooting stages again. Um, and that race, it's, it's considered a shooter's race because um, for every shot you miss, you get, you're assessed a one minute penalty. Hmm. And so that's a weird one where you don't have a physical penalty. You have a, like a time added situation is that
0: just because of the time of the event itself is already long.
1: I, I think it is actually, I think that race is actually the original format um, was like the, like that was the biathlon race before. And now there's several different formats that you could race in any one weekend. Um, kind of akin to an OCR race where there'd be a sprint and an ultra and a beast yep. same thing here. There'd be a sprint race. And then maybe the next day there's a pursuit race. So, you start in the order you finished the day before, and literally the first person to cross the line wins. Cool. Um, there's a mass start event. There are relays. There's all these different ways. So, honestly, it's got a lot of similarities to OCR where you're assessed a physical penalty if you mess up. Right. And, um, you know, it's either a cumulative time if it's an individual start race, or the person who crosses the line first if it's a mass start, um, or a chasing, a pursuit style race. So, it's kind of cool in the sense of yeah. a bunch of options.
0: It sounds like OCR has taken a, a page from that book in on several respects. Like they do a race like that where it's a trifecta weekend, and I'll have it be pursuit, to so whoever finishes first. And of course, we have the spear throw. Everybody's seen the spear throw. That's basically yeah. the same kind of thing. Right?
1: A lot of times, and I think that's like the obstacle that people mess up the most. Yeah. At least that's what it seems like on my end. And uh, yeah, so imagine that, but having to do five spear throws every stage. So doing like doing 10 to 20 spear throws a race and that's what you're being penalized on.
0: Oh my God. Nobody knows how I would do those races. Be like, I'm out. I'm not, yeah. never doing too many, you, too many burpees. How did you get into this? Like where, where are these in uh, the States?
1: Yeah. So they're very, um, regionally based. I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in Northern Wisconsin, but I didn't do biathlon growing up there. Um, the, there were a lot of junior ski racers out of Minnesota who did do biathlon because that is one of the hubs. So they oftentimes use old Olympic venues, like Lake Placid has a biathlon range on, like at the ski trails there. Um, Salt Lake in Soldier Hollow has a biathlon range at the ski trails there. The one in Minnesota is up in uh, Grand Rapids, Minnesota. So they're kind of scattered all over the place. There's one now in uh, in Wyoming. There's a small one in Bozeman, Montana. There's one in Tahoe. Um, So there's all these little ranges. There's uh, one in Jericho, Vermont. Um, on the National Guard base there. So it's kind of like it's regionally based. Um, Canmore, so another Olympic venue in Canada and Vancouver um, up in Whistler. So a lot of times it's you're using that infrastructure that's just been kind of left there. And those are full 30-point ranges as a a standard size. The ones in like Bozeman um, and in Wyoming, they're growing and that their goal is to have a 30-point range that they could host international races at those events or at those venues, but generally speaking, those ranges are smaller, and it might only be a five point range or a 10 point range, because it's used more for training than it is for like big
0: races. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And you found that after like, just after running or in school, like, how did you?
1: Yeah, so I, I went abroad in high school, I lived in Eastern Europe for a year, and hmm. had kind of fallen in love with Nordic skiing, right before I left for that trip. Um, hmm. And they actually didn't, there wasn't like a Nordic ski team where I was. I lived in Latvia, but there was a biathlon program. And so I just ski trained with them. I really had no desire to do biathlon at that point in time. Um, And I really wanted to like prove myself skiing. And then partway through college, I'd been qualifying for NCAA events. But in skiing, each school can only bring three skiers to NCAA championships and our school would routinely—we had a really strong women's team—and we would routinely qualify four or five athletes. And I um, was no—I ne- was a freshman and a sophomore, and so oftentimes they'd go on seniority, um, and I wasn't getting to go to NCAA's, and that was really frustrating for me because I saw skiing in college like this path, and I like mm. wanted to go to the Olympics, and I, you know, I needed to ski well collegiately, then I could go to a post-collegiate development program. And then I could, you know, go to the World Cup and the Olympics and um, felt like I was stalling out and had gone to what we call junior nationals. That spring, even though I was a college student, I was still a junior in the ski world um, and got approached there. They're like, you're skiing really fast. Have you ever shot a gun? And growing up in Wisconsin, I took hunter safety when I was nine years old. Nice. Um, so, so, like, have, I have. Yeah, I have. Um, I'd, you know, gone to Boy Scout camp with my brothers and had shot a gun a little bit. And so um, I was so disenfranchised skiing collegiately and didn't feel like I was being a good student because I, like, go kind of all in when I approach things. that mm. I um I dropped out of school my, after my sophomore, this the spring of my sophomore year of college, I dro- dropped out of school and packed up all my belongings and moved to Northern Maine because there was a training group out there. And it was primarily who would be the junior national team for biathlon. So I moved out there having no real experience in the sport and uh, made the, did really well that year, um, podiumed over in Europe at European championships and was named to the senior national team that spring. So instead of or like the following spring, so six or eight months into doing biathlon, I'd been named to the national team and I'd kind of thought of it of like taking a year off from school and trying skiing. And it turned into me not going to back to school for that full Olympic cycle. Wow. Yeah.
0: Nice. It's a big page. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and like taking that risk to go after it is a testament itself and just completely uprooting and going. That's a pretty intense move for a kid that age too. It's like yeah. I was going to make it happen. I'm,
1: I'm lucky. I have super supportive parents. Um, And they, you know, they were worried like, well, you know, when you drop out of school, it's, it can be harder to go back. And but school always, but they kind of told me, you know, school will always be there. And if it's something yeah. I wanted to pursue, um, that I could. And at that point in time too, I think there were a number of um skiers that had foregone college to ski for a couple of years that were kind of in the U S like the U S skiing pipeline. And I, I think I was kind of envious of them in a way too. And I think that just helped. I was like looking for forward movement, looking for progress. Um, I've almost like, I feel like I've relaxed a little bit since then, but, um, yeah, just like needed, needed to move forward in some way. And so that was kind of, I saw it as an opportunity to like next chapter, next step, like, next racing scene and so now i just feel like i'm a connoisseur of obscure sports but um yeah it was, it was a great move for me and i i learned a lot during that time some really positive lessons some less positive lessons um but it was a really really good um decision for where i was i was so much better at school when i ended up ultimately going back to school a couple mm-hmm. years
0: later and yeah it's a lot you've you definitely learned something a lot of people and did something a lot of people wouldn't have ever done so you and you're right. Giving yourself the context to kind of then come back into school and have a certain focus that might not have been there. I'm sure it was just Mm -hmm. beneficial instead of just going through the motions and getting through and then being done with school. Like, okay, like I was a skier this whole time, not a student.
1: Um, you know, we (laughs) traveled from Wednesday to Sunday every single week season, which was, you know, generally started over Christmas break and went through March. And so there's a lot of school to miss as well.
0: Right. Totally. Um, so cool. It's a awesome, a glimpse into your background. So tell us a little bit more about who you are now and like what you're doing as like an athlete and a coach.
1: Yeah. So I ended up graduating from my undergrad and going to grad school up in Vancouver, British Columbia. Um, I'm actually still in process of finishing my degree. Um, didn't have a great lab fit up there, but was studying environmental physiology and um, which I'm like kind of obsessed about. And when I say environmental physiology, I mean how people can thrive um, survive and thrive in really extreme conditions, be it cold, be it altitude, be it really hot and humid. Um, I was fascinated by wildland firefighters and the impacts of working in those environments. And that's kind of what steered me into that. And I got to combine kind of my love of athletics into that as well from a sports performance aspect. And so during my graduate program, I ended up, I started coaching. I came on with CTS. Um, under Jason Coop, kind of as our ringleader, he will tell you he's not our boss, but he's our. <laughs> so I asked him if we could call him our ringleader. Um, so he's like, "quote unquote," our head coach. Um, but I came on with a program like CTS because I needed. Um, I was kind of scared. Um, one part of my biathlon story that some people know now at this point is that I was super overtrained, um, really, really sick. That's, kind of, that's what actually why I left that sport and went back to school was because I just, I had to take a year and a half completely off, essentially, of activity. Um, so when it came to starting coaching, my biggest hang up, I had all this educational background. My undergraduate degree is in applied physiology, you know, ba- basically coaching. Right. Um, and I had all this knowledge, but I was really scared to be a coach because I was so worried from my own personal experience Um, like, cause you bring what, you know, Mm -hmm. that I was going to hurt people that I was going to work with athletes and I was going to somehow like not listen to them or not read the cues or just like totally, I don't know, do something crazy. And so I was so scared that I was going to hurt someone. And so instead of going out on my own coaching with another group made a lot of sense because although I wasn't going to get my hand held, I was going to get kind of continuing education and have kind of a support network of other coaches that I was working not necessarily directly with, but alongside. And so, um, I started coaching with Jason. Um, we're now, there's 11 of us now, which is kind of crazy in the running side of things. Um, but it was a, you know, they like allowed me to come into the coaching world and get my feet wet and learn kind of on, on the job. And that's been really great. So I've been doing that for four years now. Um, which has been really, really re- rewarding and really fun. And it got I get to combine kind of my love of running and competition and sport with my love of science. And um, I'm currently, I coach a good stable of athletes. They're t- 26 to 68 years old, um, primarily in um, ultra and trail events. But people who are running shorter, people who are running up to I've got an athlete next year who will be doing a 350 mile race. So got it. I
0: didn't even know that yeah. as a thing that could even exist.
1: Yeah. It's like a 200 plus category is a thing now. So, um, yeah, so racing, like everything in between. I've got brand new runners who have been running for a year and they've got a big race goal. And I've got runners who are far more experienced than I am, um, in the ultra world. Cause I've only been racing ultras since 2016. Um, so I started coaching like right before, I started running ultras essentially, but I'd done mm. trail racing. So I was like familiar, but I, you know, hadn't yet run Western States or Leadville or all these races that people are looking for coaching for. Um, so I feel like I'm very fortunate to have super skilled athletes that I get to work with as well.
0: And just because it wasn't exactly ultra ultra, racing that you were doing you were still training at like a really high level and like taking on volume and knowing how that feels and knowing like the mental side of things and i feel like that's a lot of what people would need as opposed to just be like okay at western states this this might happen it's like during the training process this is what you can expect and this is what the outcome might be so i i doesn't necessarily seem like you need to be a seasoned ultra athlete to, to get into it as much.
1: No. And I would say too, like, um, I, I always joked, um, I know I've got plenty of really good friends who don't come from the same educational background as me, but are coaching. Mm-hmm. And in part it's because, you know, they're an elite runner and they have a lot of experience. Um, and I never, I always kind of cringed at being the elite athlete who used coaching to pay, for my running right. um, like I didn't want to be that person and I joked that like well actually, I became a coach because I was a poor grad student and like needed to pay rent um, not because I needed it to pay for race expenses but um, I, I think that that experience is really valid as well um, there are definitely things that I've learned through doing these 100 mile races that I would not have I could I understand the science and I understand the physiology but there are certain experiences that I've had out there that I'm like that will be valuable to someone else that I can right. Someone else. But I also have, you know, I can turn to AJW or Jason himself, and you know, about a race that I haven't done to pick their brain on it. If I've got an athlete doing something that I'm not personally familiar
0: with, right. And it's nice to have that support system s- system there as well. And yeah, you learn as you go. <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> You'll figure <definitely>. out, like, <laughs> <laughs> um, um, yeah. And yeah, and your experience and your education in environmental physiology, which is a term that I don't think I knew was a thing, but it makes sense because I want to talk about like some of the heat training. Um, and that's kind of a common thing that we're hearing this time of year, especially on the East coast where, uh, where I'm at and it's really hot, really humid. Um, and it really takes a toll on us, uh, in training and just makes everything seem worse and a little bit harder. So like what exactly is happening when it's really hot that makes it harder to train?
1: Yeah, so there are a number of factors, right? Your um when you heat up and this is the same honestly very similar to altitude as well. Your body is going undergoing a lot of stress. And to start off with too, like you're as humans, we're super inefficient. Like we produce a lot of heat for doing very little work. So you're going to have so you have your normal like, you know, if you go for a run in the winter too, you also get warm. Um so you've got the combination of you producing heat internally with all this external force of heat essentially being applied to you, be it, you know, directly from the sun, through radiation, um, bouncing off of the surfaces around you, um, air being really warm. So there's all these different ways that heat is applied. And oftentimes they're considered radiation, conduction, convection, um, all these ways that heat is transferred between objects, objects. Wow, that was almost not a word. Objects.
0: (laughs) I would believe that, I'd be like, I guess that's how that's said.
1: That's how you say that. So we're inefficient to start. Plus you have these environmental factors that we can adapt to. um, Hence heat acclimation being a thing, but it takes some time. And you can think of it as, you know, you're heating up. You've got this internal thermometer, essentially. And that's why, like, that's why you shiver, right? You get, you get a certain, like your temperature drops, you shiver to warm back up. So the same goes for heat. So certain things start to shut down or you start to, kind of like shunt blood other places. So same with the cold, right? That's why your, your fingertips get cold or your toes get cold or your nose gets cold. You have vasoconstriction or your blood vessels, you know, kind of shrinking in size to keep your core warm. So the opposite happens in hot environments where you're shunting blood to your skin surface because it's warm and it wants to push that. And I'm going to use a lot of hand gestures that no one's gonna be able to see. Um, (laughs) it so so instead of vasoconstriction you have vasodilation and you're sending blood away from your core to your skin surface to try to you know basically have the heat you know move like to your skin surface and then like either you know sweat and then evaporation but heat essentially is being transferred into the air and as those temperatures become closer together as it gets hotter and hotter out it's harder for things to move because there isn't a gradient anymore right? A gradient of something moving from areas of a high to low concentration.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: It's hard for their, it's hard when temperatures reach a certain level to offload heat very well, because it's almost as if there's nowhere for it to go. Right. And then there's downstream effects of that blood flow moving to your skin, right? Yes, it's smart, because it's helping you dissipate heat. We love dissipating heat. But if you think about doing a long race, or even a shorter race, all of a sudden, that blood flow, isn't going to your like the tissues of your stomach and your small intestine anymore. And so it's got really, it's got a really fancy term called splanchnic hypoperfusion. Um, But essentially what that means hypoperfusion being a lack of perfusion. So a lack of blood flow um, to those tissues that make up your small intestines and your stomach. And what that happens is that then all of a sudden there's, you know, oxygen deprivation at those tissues. You can, you can do some level of damage actually over a long period of time, but it also just makes it really hard for you to move liquids and solids, you know, through that system and have it be absorbed properly. Um, And that's where you can end up with like heat specific GI distress. Mm -hmm. Because you're not allowing, um, there isn't blood flow there. It's really hard for things to move across that, um, that membrane, essentially that the membrane lining of your small intestine. So lots of things are happening. You're, you know, everyone feels worse. And part of it's because you've, gotta, you've got to acclimate. You've got to adapt. So you're sweating. Maybe you're sweating more than usual. Your heart rate's generally higher than it, it normally is. Um, all these little pieces that should, in theory, get better as you're exposed to it. And that's why when we get those hot, like those really, really hot days or those hotter spring days, um, I'm going to use air quotes and no one's going to really see them. Um, <laughs> those hot spring days where all of a sudden it's like that first warm day of the year. And like, you just feel like garbage. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's part because your body does make adaptations in order for you to perform better or survive those conditions. And so the goal is in like, in a general sense, us just running, us continuing to run um, in the buildup to summer training or a summer race, we should be getting that daily heat exposure. And that should be enough for you to naturally acclimate. We have athletes on the other end of the spectrum who might live in a more temperate environment um, or a mild environment. Honestly, San Francisco, most of the year falls into that category. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to do bad water or Western States, or I'm gonna go out East to a really hot, humid race, um, or to the South, like having time to heat acclimate in a non-natural setting. So not just by going out and doing my run every day, becomes more important because that'll help me perform better when I do arrive in that hot, humid environment.
0: And what are the expectations when you are going through this, um, acclimation process? Is it like, say for altitude training, I think people just think, Oh, I'll go somewhere for two weeks and then it'll be better. Is it the kind of the same with, with heat or how, how long do people need to expose themselves to heat, um, to have it not be, as awful as it is that first hot day.
1: Yeah, it's very mm. very similar to altitude acclimation. Generally speaking, most of the big changes um including like plasma plasma volume expansion, so like all the blood and stuff that's in your body, um your heart rate that allows your heart rate to come back down. Um so you don't have your cardiac system isn't working as hard. Um sweat rates change a little bit. Um, You you generally sweat more because evaporative cooling is this funky trick humans have. So generally it's, it's two weeks or so. Um, And honestly, most of those adaptations generally take place in the first 10 days even. So not that long, but you do need that daily exposure initially to make that happen. So if you want to preempt those warm days, you can do that by using what we would call like passive heating. Um, So like getting in a sauna, that kind of thing to stimulate that heat exposure um otherwise when i've got athletes who are transitioning to like a warmer like the warmer season as long as we don't have a race coming up um and we're just going to naturally heat acclimate by going for our runs every day Mm. i'll take intensity and stuff out of the program because the quality of those workouts go down so much that it's unless they can get up really early or run really late or whatever it is to kind of circumnavigate those like you know those like almost dangerous temperatures um it's not worth them doing the really, really hard work. You're not going to get like extra strong because you're doing super hard work while it's really hot, while you're not acclimated. So I'm always looking for the ways to, to make adaptations at the lowest cost to the athlete,
0: hmm.
1: um, while maintaining the highest quality training we can.
0: Yeah. Cause that's a tough one, right? Cause if your your race say is in, I'm just going to use Philadelphia as an example is in mid June. Um, and like, it gets really hot in the first week of June or something like that. And you, or, or in mid-May and you have these important, um, workouts to go after, do you still think it's better to use it as a chance to acclimate to the heat as opposed to just like trying to bust the door down? Cause I mean, I feel like that just makes sense to people. It's like, well, I still need to do these workouts. I'm just going to put them in however I can, but then the workouts end up pretty terrible typically. So will you see that and just be like, all right, well, we're just going to scrap this and add. Do you add volume or just kind of keep it all the same across?
1: When- sometimes keep it all. I mean, it's got to be specific to their event, right? Like me, just like bumping up volume to replace a workout doesn't make a ton of sense. Um, mm. Sometimes that means like we move a workout. Obviously, there there were things that happened before COVID that we might not get to do post COVID for a while, and I think that's really important to remember or take with a grain of salt here. Um, maybe that means moving a workout inside. So they're Mm. not going to get that exposure that day, but they're going to go, they're going to run early out of the heat, or they're going to run on their treadmill with a fan or they're on their bike trainer or something that's different where they can get the quality workout in. And then they're getting heat exposure on the other days at easier intensities. Mm -hmm. Um, You're right. I think that the double whammy of getting that big workout in, um, I mean, psychologically, there's probably benefits of that, that heat exposure, but physiologically, um, It could be a recipe for disaster of just it being too, like too many stressors, the hard workout, the high, the high temperature, are they going to be able to recover in time to do their long, long workout? Are we going to sacrifice workouts down the road because we pushed them too far on that one workout? So it's all these like kind of little decisions that we've got to piece together to that make the most sense for each individual. If I know an athlete has an early summer race um, and we have access to something like a sauna um which obviously like now post COVID, it's like that that was like why i had a gym membership was so that i had a sauna um because i can do the rest of the stuff you know in our garage like you could preempt that by doing some passive heating earlier in the season because you can maintain that heat acclimation Mm. uh generally speaking by just having heat exposure like once every three days after Mm. the initial adaptation that's why you don't like lose your heat acclimation over the course of the summer if you guys have like, a cold week or a cold couple of days. Um, because you're still getting that heat, that heat exposure every so often, and you can kind of maintain it. It's not gonna, we would call it decay of like something like an adaptation going away would be the decay rate mm-hmm. of decay of something. Um, and so that's what we're kind of watching out for. And so there's like really specific events or races where we like we have a heat acclimation protocol that we're gonna put an athlete through dependent on where they live. My athletes in Texas don't really need a heat acclimation protocol because they're gonna get hot in the spring and it's gonna be plenty hot by the time, they're gonna have tons of heat exposure by the time their June race rolls around. Um, But if you're going to like Costa Rica in March or something, maybe you didn't have that heat exposure in February or January. So trying to find ways to, to tweak that. And so there are things you can use. So I keep referring to passive heating and it's just because this is like kind of the newer philosophy on um, heat acclimation, like instead of using um, the natural environment if, that, if that's not readily available or like super overdressing, which I think has some psychological benefits, but not necessarily like you lower the quality. Once again, how do we maintain, maintain the quality of the workout? The best way I have found to maintain the quality of someone's workout while still doing heat acclimation at the same time is to use what we call a passive heat protocol. And that means that an athlete's going to go in as basically as soon as they can post workout, kind of within a 30 minute window is ideal. Um, They're going to go in and get in a sauna or get in a hot tub. Um, We found that there's some research that's come out that um, hot, like using a hot tub can be effective as well. Hmm. Um, And because you've already been warm, like I said earlier, we're not super efficient humans. We produce heat while we're running, even in more temperate environments. Um, You're going in already warm. So you don't need to spend 90 minutes in the sauna or 90 minutes in the hot tub, you can do a much smaller dose and get out of there because you came in preheated. So we've maintained the quality of the workout by allowing you to do it not overdressed, um, not in a crazy contraption. You know, Maybe it's even in temperate or mild or cool conditions. Um, And then we're taking that already warm body because you heat up as you exercise and putting you in a hot environment for 30 minutes. And you can kind of build into that and that's all you need to do. It's a lot. It's a lot easier than kind of the, okay, I'm going to ride my bike trainer in layers and layers and layers of clothing, or I'm going to go for a run in layers and layers and layers of clothing. Um, and I like I've, despite knowing all this, I still have personally, um, gone and done like a hike in layers and layers and layers of clothing because there's a psychological component I think to that, of just like being uncomfortable and like sitting Yeah. 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 I mean, and I don't think people like I think showing up every day is a good way to uh, to acquire toughness, like running on the days that you don't want to run is a great way to acquire toughness. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think there's something psychological about being really warm and really uncomfortable and having to kind of sit in it um, and stew in it a little bit, like literally stew in it in a way. Um, But so I think that there is a place for both. But generally speaking, there's kind of this. Uh, We're seeing it used in a lot of national governing bodies so like it's come out of like the Australian Sports Institute and the Canadian Sports Institute um, of using this passive heat protocol so sauna or hot water immersion post exercise and yeah they do it for two they do it generally for 10 days to two weeks in a row and then you can maintain that adaptation. This is like super nitty gritty and kind of very nerdy. Bring it. Maintain that though, just by like doing a hot yoga session or getting in the sauna again, um, or the hot tub once every three days is gonna help maintain that decay. Because once again, people are like, okay, I've got Kona or I've got this thing coming up. So I should do this like the two weeks leading into the race, right? And I'm like, well, n- no, cause it's really hard on the body. But we try to space it out actually far enough for the race that it's kind of ahead of the taper. Um, so that you go into the race, still feeling fresh.
0: So um, somewhere like six, six six-ish weeks or so out. So you can give yourself a chance to yeah, I would
1: say five to six weeks out, yeah. maybe even four to six weeks out, depending on the person you can experiment with this, right? You could do, there's no harm, no foul in doing this in the middle of the year, way away from all your racing, just to see how that protocol feels to you.
2: Mm-hmm. Like, you That's smart. Out,
1: why yeah. not do this for a week, um, or do it and try to get seven, seven of 10 days in, Um, In January, when you don't have a race coming up for a while, um, that'll allow you to feel like how stressful is it for you? What kind of recovery do you need from it? How did you feel the following week, the next week after that? Like, there's no harm in doing in doing this again. Um, It's not like it's a one and done thing. Um, So I think that that's kind of nice, just to get used to that that stimuli. The one caution I have right now, and I think COVID's going to make this really difficult for a lot of folks, is that we yet to have. And I'm not, you know, I feel like infrared saunas are going to come out, come after me after we have this podcast. But um, there is yet, and I really want to do this research project. So come after me and give me money to do the research project. That that'd be there safe. you go. I'm yeah, in. I'm in Red Bull. Hit me up. Um, <laughs> but uh, there's no literature right now that supports infrared saunas. Like we do not understand physiologically if it elicits the same effect as a normal dry sauna.
0: Could you explain the difference between the two?
1: Yeah. And I'm probably going to be wrong on this. So a dry sauna is like a traditional sauna. At yeah, the right? gym. It's yeah. not a steam room. Most This is what most gyms have. Um, it uses like a heating apparatus just to make the room really, really hot. Um, this is like a traditional Finnish sauna, which would have like a wood stove in it. So it's mm-hmm. normally like a wooden room. It's just really hot and it's got a heating apparatus, but it's just the air temperature itself is made really, really hot. And it's called a dry sauna sometimes because it's not a steam room. Um, And generally speaking, it's just kind of like the gold standard for this type of stuff. Oh, that's what a lot of gyms have, particularly older gyms. They're going to have this like traditional dry sauna. Um, And they're great. That's like good dry heat. Steam rooms are really hard to sit in because of the humidity, Mm. because nowhere for your sweat to evaporate into. So you feel really hot at lower temperatures, which is why the East coast in the summer is so difficult. Worst, yeah. (laughs) Um, Because there's nowhere for that sweat to evaporate into to help cool you down. So that's the difference between a dry sauna and a steam room. Um, You could just stay in a dry sauna longer and you can generally stay in at higher temperatures. Um, An infrared sauna, they're newer. You see them in a lot of health spas. They're really, they're very cheap. Like you could put one in there, like you could have one in your house in your bathroom, in your basement. Um, so I think they're getting a lot of, a lot of play from a lot of folks right now because you can have them anywhere. And I think they make people feel good, but it uses um, UV light. I should look this up so I don't totally botch this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So an sauna heats your body directly without warming the air around you. And it uses a light frequency to do that, which I don't quite understand, but you see it a lot in, health spas and like detox, you know, it's a way to detox your body. Um, you know, there's some, I think there is some research with, in a clinical population using infrared saunas. Um, and it's called an infrared sauna because they use infrared rays or this light. Um, which so is they're not that warm when you go in there? Yeah, I I, I people can tolerate them for a super, super long time because oh, essentially um they use infrared waves, which is like on the light spectrum, to to heat you without heating the air. So I'm not exactly sure how that's gonna elicit the adaptations we're looking for physiologically like a normal sauna would where you're sitting in warm air. That being said, you can tolerate an infrared sauna for a really long time because it's not a hot environment. So someone will come after us and correct me on all this, which is totally fine. And I would love the research to come out on this so that we could look at blood, because what we need to do is do the biochemistry side of things. We need to look at blood volume, sweat rates, um, like hemoglobin, hematocrit, um, to see like, are we actually eliciting? Cause these things have been measured in normal heat acclimation studies using cha- using heat chambers with a- activity happening in them, treadmills, bikes, that kind of thing, using natural heat acclimation, using overdressing and using traditional saunas and hot water immersion. We have biological markers from those studies that help us see kind of how the body acclimates to heat so that we're more efficient in it. Um, but there, none of those studies have been done using infrared saunas. And I mm. think that I'm a super skeptical person and I like to use the terminology that this falls into kind of the bio plausible realm where in theory, this might work, but we don't either understand that at the, the, eti- uh, the etiology, so like what the mechanism is behind it um, yet or Mm -hmm. if it actually helps. Um, and placebos are real. I love a good placebo effect. Um, I mean, man, anything that makes you feel good, I'm going to, but I don't understand the the physiological mechanism of infrared saunas. And so that's my biggest fear right now is that they are, they, they are really popular. They're used, they're easy to install in your home. They're super cheap. You know, this is a great marketing ad for them. Um, but we have no idea if it's going to actually elicit heat acclimation. Mm -hmm. And so I would like that research to happen before I say, yeah, of course. So I always encourage, I personally seek out and I always encourage my athletes to find a dry sauna. That being said with our state of gym access and gyms opening, we're going to have some availability issues there. Like I don't know when I will be back in a gym, um, in a confined box full of other warm humans. Mm -hmm. So, um, we're kind of, It's going to be interesting to see kind of what comes out of this. The other big thing that'll be really cool in the next year is that with the I mean, if the Olympics hadn't been postponed, we'd have research coming out this fall. But there's a ton of research going into the Tokyo Games because they're supposed to be the hottest on record. And so there will be so much new research that is not yet out that will come out post Tokyo from the Canadian Sport Institute, from the Australia Sport Institute, from Europe, from the U.S., um and that'll be really cool because it will be on thermoregulation. it will be on cooling strategies um so i'm like waiting with bated breath for some like new cool clients um, totally and
0: they're probably going to apply it to their athletes and see how it goes in the games so they can 100%. see the direct performance from them that would be really cool yeah, um
1: strategies are big in the games because it's harder in ultra it's harder in ocr to do that but yeah. Um, cooling strategies like how can you stay cool in a hot environment not just going like not just the acclimation part going into it um, is a really interesting topic for a lot of folks Um, and that's going to be covered intently with strategies from these games
0: totally because that has to do more with the performance of the day right like we're talking about how to prepare yourself for that day um, and it sounds like every If if you get that two weeks in and then every third day, you're just being on top of it. If you don't have a sauna, overdress or something like that, theoretically, you should be able to hold on to these, um, these, uh, heat gains. Um, but just real quick, you touched on humidity for like a second and then ran away what can we do about the humidity? Is there anything there with it? Because it just does seem, it seems like you're trapped in a steam room where it's just all around you. Like it's not going anywhere and you're just sweating like crazy. Um, So like, what kind of recommendations would you have for people? Like, do you acclimate the same way or is it more about uh, in in competition during training, like cooling strategies that would be better for humidity?
1: Yeah. So unfortunately, humidity is a thing that, can't, like, there is some research looking at, like, if you're training for a hot, dry environment versus a hot, humid environment, like, maybe that's where you would utilize a steam room just so that your body, just I think, but I think those adv- advantages are likely psychological, not mm. psychological. Um, The issue with humidity is that one of the best ways for the human body to cool itself off is via evaporation, evaporation being sweat evaporating off your skin into the air and literally pulling heat with it. But that concentration gradient is important. Again, if the air is too humid, you have less and less evaporation because there's already moisture in the air. So there's nowhere for that sweat to go, right? So that's like, that's why humidity feels so terrible. And obviously the more humid it is, the worse we are at evaporating into it. Just Mm -hmm. from like, you know, concentrations based side of science. that being said, cooling strategies are probably more beneficial or more like specifically beneficial to think about. So that would be things like um, pre-cooling would be including things like drinking like an icy slurry before the race um, or before your run because that's going to drop your core temperature a little bit. They actually don't advise it doing for the most part doing it during exercise because it could convince your body that it's colder than it is and like try to revert blood flow a little bit uh, so pre-exercise huh. drinking that kind of like, you know, that 7-Eleven Slurpee or yeah. that, um, that slurry, like a water bottle with like crushed ice in it. Something that's going to be really cold will help cool you down. Um, generally speaking, that's why we like, we jump, we dump cold water and ice on people for two factors. One is because that is a really good way to cool down the, cool yourself down in general if you're in a dry environment, that can also be like extra things to evaporate. But it's still, it's still um, advantageous in a humid environment to put ice on yourself, to put cold water on yourself, to you know, to dunk dunk yourself in that creek or that, you know, the water, whatever it might be, that is going to be helpful. We get double lucky in the hot, dry environments because we can utilize that for evaporation as well. Mm. Whereas you can't in the humid. So I think though, because you can't evaporate. As much sweat in those environments, falling more maybe heavily or more being more reliant on cooling strategies during the event will probably make you feel better and probably help with that. You know, keeping your core body temperature a little bit lower for a little bit longer. Um, So we pack ice on people. Um, You'll see it in cycling, for example. They make ice socks, which are nylon baggy. Like you take nylons and you fill it with with ice cubes and you tie it off, and they're like anywhere from like, mm, let's say like a tennis ball to, I mean, I made really big ones for Western States that were like ice logs, but you can put those in your like in your shirt, in your hydration vest, whatever it is, and you're going to hold that. Um, if you're a lady, you got a sports bra, getting ice down in those areas and having that be held on your skin is going to help keep you cooler as well. Um, so that I think is a really practical technique um and then once again afterwards too just kind of cooling yourself off as quickly as possible because your bo- your core body temperature is going to be elevated and that's where people get into risk of like heat illness and heat stroke and that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, and with those in, like during a race <clears throat> that seems to be where you know people do get hurt, right? Because they're not really yeah. sure where where those lines are or or what it's going to feel like. Like I've never had like, heat stroke. I don't know what it's going to feel like right before I have that, have that yeah. you know? So, like, what kind of things can you help, like, prepare people for from, like, a safety standpoint when it comes to that? Because I know even just training here, like, right now, it feels kind of scary sometimes to go out because you get those feelings. So, what should people do when they need to, like, listen to their bodies that way? Like, is there anything specific that you can <laughs> – arm people with
1: so generally speaking a really a really good thing to cue into is if you stop sweating that's not a good sign you're in the humid environment you should be sweating if you stop sweating that's not a good sign that's generally a sign of dehydration and your thermoregulation being really out of whack oftentimes too, you will like you'll stop sweating and then you'll even get cold you'll feel cold even you know goosebumps um that's a sign that you've kind of you're you've gone too far you need to ease way back i would just say like It's hard in a race scenario to like moderate your intensity. Um, But if you feel like all of a sudden you're not sweating as much as you feel lightheaded, um, if you're starting to actually get goosebumps or something like slowing down is important because that's going to help you lower your core body temperature because you're going to stop producing as much heat. Um, I urge I'm kind of in the middle of the hydration camp when it comes to like how many, like how much fluids you should ingest. And it's definitely super individual, but I would say when you're walking into this really hot, humid environment, you know, I would probably carry a water bottle on me, even if I was going for a shorter run, just so that I'm like staying on top of things, because I'm going to definitely be sweating more than, I, more than I consume anyway, but at least I'm not in a huge hole when I finish the run, because I've been taking a little bit of fluids. Um, so that's kind of like, that's it. I think that's really important. Yeah. Um, I'm not in the camp of like drinking the thirst and I'm not in the camp of like having to take an X number of fluids on the run. Um, because I don't think either one is a great strategy. Um, there's generally a range that people fall into. Um, and we recommend oftentimes that's like 16 to 42 ounces an hour, depending on the person, which is so like,
2: that's like huge, know, it's huge. It's
1: huge difference. Yeah. That's like one saw flask or several, um, and part of that's going to be your sweat rate um, will change a little bit when you heat acclimate so your w- one of the things that happens when you heat acclimate is that your sweat quote unquote becomes more dilute and that's not because you're like all of a sudden a genius and you're holding on to every single you know bit of electrolyte, but it's just because you're sweating your co- the concentration of your sweat goes down because you're sweating more um,
0: it becomes less and- salty when you're acclimated yeah. okay
1: yeah it becomes less salty when you're acclimated and they're like oh it's because you're retaining it and it's like well, it's not because you're retaining it it's because you're sweating more you, and you're sweating more because your body thinks that that's going to help cool you down um so oftentimes a couple times a year you could go you know pee before you go for your run weigh yourself after you pee go for a run for an hour don't drink or pee while on your run for some people that's a long time to not pee on a run but do that. So pee, weigh yourself, go for a 60 minute run, come back, weigh yourself. That, you know, like they'll be like, there's pounds and this many pounds lost, you know, you right. a certain amount of it to sweat. Obviously you're, you're losing fluids through other things like just breathing. Um, but you can do that a couple times a year and get a sense for like, if your sweat rate is changing, depending on it being humid, it being dry, um, being heat acclimated, not being heat acclimated to kind of gauge where you personally are on that spectrum of how much mon- how much fluids you should be taking in every hour. And I would just say when we're in like the dangerous time of the summer where it's hot and it's, and it's humid, I would just carry fluids on me anyway. Maybe you don't need them. Maybe someone else needs them. Um, mm, that's true. Like I've definitely been that mm. desperate person out there being like water. Um, <laughs> so like, obviously, you know, we don't want to be giving everyone our soft flasks right now in a pandemic. But I mean, having water on you, you can douse it on yourself. If you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend, you know, dumping Gatorade on yourself or anything. But um, having that soft flask, you can also use it to kind of, you know, put water down your back or something to help you feel feel a little bit cooler for a bit. Um, But there's a wide range of how much fluids you should take in. And that's going to be super independent on how sweaty of a person you are, um, how hot it is, how humid it is, and how long you're going for. And I just recommend taking in fluids on the run because um, you're not gonna. The goal is not to replace all the fluids you've lost while you're running. It would be impossible, and it would not feel good. But if you're taking in fluid and calories on your run, that's less fluid and calories that you have to make up once you finish. Mm. So just kind of trying to keep athletes out of that hole of being super dehydrated for the rest of the day, or being super, you know, under. Chlorically and end up in like a energy deficiency situation. Um, so th- those are, I think are the prime reasons um, you get dehydrated and you don't regulate heat as well. So taking in a certain degree of fluids is really important because when you get dehydrated, your blood, like the amount, your blood volume decreases um, because the flu, like some of the, obviously you're not like sweating out platelets or something, but your blood is becoming more concentrated, and so you're not going to thermoregulate as well. Mm. So you're allowed to be dehydrated to a certain extent. There's all these original studies that said, you know, if you're dehydrated by more than 3%, it's a huge performance decrease. Well, we know that you can be a little bit more dehydrated than that without having a performance decrease. But the more dehydrated you get, the le- it's like this vicious cycle of, like, all of a sudden when you're super dehydrated, you don't thermo- like, regulate well. And it's just kind of this continuous cycle of like mm. bad things. So that's another reason why, even on a shorter run, mm. taking some hydration or going into the run, you, like you hydrated, so balanced, um, as opposed to super overhydrated or super underhydrated, is kind of a good place to be because you're going to thermoregulate really well or better.
0: And that's what makes, seems to make this hydration thing so tricky. And like, there's not like a rule of thumb, like how there might be for carbohydrate intake. You know, it's uh, like, it's like, ah, uh, maybe. And it used to be like, don't drink at all. And I was like, drink a ton. Now it's like, <laughs> yeah. drink sometimes.
1: Drink holistically, yeah. Yeah,
0: <laughs> drink There feel.
1: isn't um, a great, there isn't a one size fits all. And that's okay. And I think that's part of what makes the science really cool is that it's not black and white. It's It's shades of gray. And understanding what's gonna work for you is really important. And some of that's experimentation. So right now, all my athletes on their long runs their their comments post long run is not necessarily like I you know at mile two I saw a coyote. It's like um, this is what I ate and this is what I drank during this long run. One that's good practice for races, but two, it's just good to kind of see like okay, maybe you felt bad because of this, or you drank this and um, you drank this and your stomach was upset. So it allows you, I think, tracking that kind of stuff. Um, although it could sound neurotic. Um, is a good way to understand what's working for you, what's not working for you and putting in the practice so that when you get to race day, you know what you can tolerate, you know what you can't tolerate and you know, kind of where you're like happy, like happy place is and all of that.
0: I know. And it's, it's just like, that's just the answer. You know, like you have to figure it out on your own. And like my least favorite thing is like navigating through like, I don't know, if somebody posts a comment saying like a Facebook group or on Reddit or something like, what do you guys eat and drink for a, a long run? And then it's, Fifty thousand comments, and they're all completely different, and it doesn't help at all. So if you I ever
2: burritos, yeah,
0: uh, like, I swear I had pickle juice, and I ran a PR. Is like, oh, pickle juice—that's the I thing, then.
1: I need I love that the study. That's my favorite. <laughs>
0: I'm kind um,
1: of with cramping, so I—I I, like this is a whole other nerdy, nerdy realm. But yeah, no, it's it is so individual. It's really important to experiment. There is no like, you know med md or i don't know healthline.com something there's no there's no one answer for anyone and generally like i write a column for i run far called running on science and um we try our best to find information that's really really applicable but is also really you know as factually accurate as possible without being super boring um right and it, the truth is, is that we're we're still learning. Um, we're in this realm of, you know, particularly on the running side of things, a lot of the research that we have is off of Ironman athletes, is off of endurance cyclists, um, is off of a much shorter distance running. And so we're in this place where we're still catching up on the research side. And honestly, exercise physiology is kind of this weird um, area science anyway, because the sample sizes are generally small and they're generally college age males. So it becomes a lot more difficult if you are not a college age male to know how applicable the research is to you. And honestly, like we do have a lot of similarities across across the sexes, across the ages, but there are things that are going to be different that we're continually learning about. And so I always take research with a grain of salt, despite being really nerdy Myself, um, I take any nutritional company's advice with a grain of salt, despite being really nerdy myself, because I mean, they're all all marketing marketing is, you know, definitely a thing. And so um, I think it's really important to approach all these things with like a degree of skepticism, and a degree of being willing to do the work, obviously, like, you know, I don't coach on an N of one. I'm not like, well, this worked for me, so this should work for you. I try to gather as much information as possible to give people options, but you are an N of one and what works for you isn't going to work for me or isn't going to work for your friend. And I think it's important to take the time to experiment within those kind of ranges that make the most sense. And maybe, maybe you're, you drink a little, maybe you drink a lot. Um, Yeah, I think it's important to be willing to experiment. And that's why you do the training. It's getting all that hard stuff out of the way. So the race day is so much smoother.
0: That's what's like really hard about um, the coaching art of things. It's like you can give someone a recommendation that has worked for nine out of 10 people. And that's the 10th person didn't work for it. And then you just kind of feel like an idiot. You're like, well, I'm sorry. (laughs) I thought that that worked. Apparently it doesn't for you. Um, Claimers, lots of like. This may work. You might just want to try it. Um, cool. You doing okay on time? Can we do a little bit more?
1: Yeah, I'm fine. Dog is napping. She hasn't, she hasn't been disruptive, so we're good.
0: Perfect. So you mentioned cramps really quickly, and I feel like that's a reason why people are often asking questions to the masses and trying to figure out why they're cramping. And that's why things like pickle juice come up and all these other things that we uh, that we want a, a pill that will literally make the cramps go away. Um, mm-hmm. So what do you know about cramping? Like what's going on there? Cause it seems like it's really convoluted and it's hard to know where these are, like what the root is of, of the, of cramps. So um, what's your general philosophy on things like that?
1: Yeah. So, and we want to like one of the important things to distinguish is we're, we're like, what we're talking about is exercise associated muscle cramping. Mm-hmm. So not like, your grandma who cramps in the middle of the night because that is a different mechanism, um, which is like, has totally different properties going on. Um, so this is like, your like you, your leg, your, your quad always cramps at mile 18 of the marathon, or, you know, your forearms always cramp at this part of your OCR rate or whatever it might be. So we're talking about like exertional cramping that's associated with exercise, um,
0: that ruined your race. Yeah.
1: That ruined your race. Um, so we've all, I mean, Similar to food poisoning, there are are people who have had food poisoning and people who have yet to have food poisoning. Cramping, I think, is the same thing. There are people who have experienced cramping and there are people who have not yet experienced cramping.
2: Um,
1: (laughs) Like it's going, it will likely happen to you. Um, The old school philosophy of exercise-associated muscle cramping was that it was clearly a hydration thing. You clearly did not have enough electrolytes. Um, maybe you're hypo or hypernatremic, so high or low blood sodium, um, and that is why you're cramping. It's an imbalance um, in sodium, and so your muscles freak out. They can't, you know, those potassium ion channels aren't working, um, and you cramp. So that was the kind of like the original thought, but then there was this pickle juice study that was actually put on by I think it was a group of physical therapy, no, athletic trainers who like started seeing this and essentially they would give people pickle juice and they would stop cramping. And that was like, Hmm, really interesting because I'm like, well, they gave them pickle juice because they thought it's got a lot of salt in it. Right. This will be great. We're just going to give them a bunch of salt. Well, your, your plasma, like your plasma, plasma sodium doesn't change in 30 seconds or 60 seconds. Um, you know, so you're taking this orally, right. It's not like an IV of pickle juice, so what could possibly be happening that would stop or abate muscle cramps in such a short period of time? So this got this whole like thing moving of like what are other possible causes of these like cramping during your race or during your run. Um, and so what we now understand is that it's kind of like a perfect storm of things. So what was happening with the pickle juice is that there are things called TRP channels. Um, Transient resistant potential channels. It's been a little while. I might be rusty. Um, Sounds good. But they are generally associated with temperature, so they'll be like TRP one, TRP V eight. So there are these channels that are associated with temperatures, um, because they're like it's a neural channel essentially. Well, you have some in your mouth and in the kind of the upper part of your throat or your oropharynx, um, and the pickle juice was engaging with that trp channel and was basically or like the theory behind it is that it kind of not short circuits but it kind of like resets that neuro signal um because what's happening is that you have your muscle is saying contract 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 and the golgi tendon organs oh sorry my puppy is sneezing
0: oh bless you
1: bless you um so you have these TRP channels, um, you've got your muscle saying contract, 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 and you've got these Golgi tendon organs in your muscles that normally say relax, but they're being underpowered. So you're getting the signal contract, 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 you're not getting the relax signal, so you're cramping. The muscle's mm-hmm. like in tetanus. Um, so you basically, the TRP channel, you trigger it with a solution, and um a solution being like a liquid source all of a sudden the cramp stops and it's because it's almost it's reset that contraction relaxation relaxation pattern and it abates the current cramping that does not mean it's gonna keep you from cramping again this is a temporary fix to a bigger problem um the same thing so that's why like uh, there's been a bunch of companies as soon as that as soon as that paper came out, there are a bunch of patents taken out on, on like for this essentially to develop a TRP agonist or something that would engage with a TRP receptor. Um, so basically a lot of these companies have like cayenne. Um, they taste, it tastes terrible. Like shot, little- a company, yeah. Right, they make, yeah. Some of the first patents taken out and theirs is based on like a, a cayenne. Um, so like things that respond to these channels are like wasabi, cayenne uh, menthol, uh, cinnamon, a bunch of different things. So for whatever, for cramping, cayenne is a pretty effective one. So they've made apples. there's a bunch of apple cider vinegar ones as well too, that do a very similar thing. They don't taste great, you know, T- but. It tastes better you're, than you're a cramp. cramping, yeah. Let's yeah. do it. So essentially they're like, whoa, we can reset this neuro thing. So what's happening that's getting, that, that's putting you into that cramp prone state. And so yes, hydration status and nutritional status definitely play a role, but they all, it also could be that you went really hard, harder than you're used to going. It could be hot. So you're exerting yourself at a higher intensity. Um, there's all these different factors that are at play. So generally it's actually like this neuro fatigue from a combination of all these factors that basically deactivates those Golgi tendon organs. And so you're not getting the relaxation signal to pair with the contraction signal, uh, which is really cool because it's not just your hydration status. All of a sudden that's important. Um, that's why slowing down oftentimes can help scramps because you're not exerting that muscle as much. Um, so what I have found with these TRP agonists is that their claims of, um, cause I've had some third-party testing. So people who are not actively, um involved in the company i e like they are not like they're not paying for the study, which is good um because those are conflicts of interest from that research these t r p agonists can have a cramping episode stop, but they're not going some of these companies have advertised that they can prophylactically keep you from cramping um. and there's no evidence to that right now, but it will abate the cramp if you are cramping, so that's like that's good. Um, so yeah, so cramping is this really weird situation where it's a perfect storm of a lot of factors. Generally speaking, I see it not to like, not to generalize, but I see it in a lot of guys in races, you know, halfway, a little bit more than halfway through where they went out really hard. (laughs) Um, if you have, you know, if you have bilateral cramping or entire body cramps, that is definitely generally more in the um hyponatremia camp where you have a major electrolyte issue. But if you have that one quad cramping or the one calf cramping or your hamstring or your forearms, that is more likely a perfect storm of generally like muscular fatigue, maybe some hydration stuff, maybe some nutrition stuff um, playing in. If you have entire body cramps um, that are bilateral, so on both sides of your body, that is more indicative of a major hydration issue, like a hot, like you need to go to the hospital. Hydration issue, mm.
2: um,
1: not a um, not a minor quad cramp. Um, and minor quad cr- cramps can put you on the ground for sure. It I hurt, yeah. Minor one
0: hurts bad, not
1: but. great. Um, but that's why also, oftentimes, if you stop and you stretch out that muscle you can kind of like re-engage the Golgi tendon organ and all of a sudden it'll get the message to relax.
2: Yeah. Right.
1: Keeps going down the trail for 10 more minutes and then it's going to cramp again. So it's kind of like, it gives you time to reassess what what might be causing the cramp um, and try to get back on track. But those, those TRP agonists, those, that pickle juice, whatever it is, isn't going to prophylactically keep you from cramping again, you have to like do the other stuff like you need to eat, you need to drink, you need to maybe slow down for a little bit so that you can cool off. Um, those things are what's going to keep you from cramping 10 miles down the road. Um, but stretching a TRP agonist is going to what's going to like break you out of that cramp right then and there. Um that's why kind of why salt pills probably fall into that same category right. is it's probably a TRP effect, um, not a prophylactic cramping effect. The other cool thing about TRP channels is we're going to see some more research on it. I think here soon. Um, one of the TRP channels corresponds to to menthol, so mint um, and it gives you a sensation of cooling. So there are performance studies being done where people gargle um, or ingest a product that has a lot of menthol in it mm. um, to see if it if the sensation of cooling boosts performance. What I will say, like, how cool is that? Like, for one, very cool. Two, though, that does not mean that you can stop doing things to keep yourself cool. So um, like, there's, there's a double, like the double edged sword there, right? Like, yes, like this could be performance boosting, because you feel cooler. So psychologically, you can like, push your body more but that does still mean that you need to like be doing things to actively cool yourself off. If it's a really short race, not as important, longer racing, you still need to be actively seeking a, like a, a way to cool yourself down because the menthol is not going to cool yourself down. It's just going to make, it's going to give you the sensation of being cooler than you are.
0: Hmm, And it, it's interesting because to me, Like what I was thinking now, like crimping just kind of sounds like, uh, like the CD is skipping. So you just have to like wipe it off a little bit It'll probably keep skipping again. But if you can figure out ways to like wipe it down with a cloth, it'll be better. Um, CD skipping, not as big of an issue these days, but, um,
1: I think you're, I feel like your audience probably can picture a CD skipping.
0: Yeah. Maybe in like 10 years I'll, I'll have to come up with something new, but I think now (laughs) it was still, it still works. Okay. Um, And it sounds like we're kind of right on the cusp of figuring out, but there's, it seems like there's a lot of different like types of these pathways to kind of really dial in. Is there anything exciting that you know of like that, or that you're looking forward to coming out about cramping or what do you foresee that being, or is it going to kind of be what, what what seems to kind of happen with all this stuff? Like even how you just mentioned with uh, the gargling of, of the menthol, it's like, this is going to help, but not, but it's going to help with everything else that you're doing. And it's something else that can be a benefit as opposed to being like the thing that now you do, where I think people just want to take that hot shot drink and that be the thing. Um,
1: it's a good aid. It's not the solution, but it's a great band aid. I will say what I think I'm most excited about, honestly, just in all research in general right now is um, the realization, the vocalization that we need to have female test subjects mm-hmm. uh, because we, although we are, biologically similar we're also biologically very different and so there and it's i from like a researcher standpoint i i i completely understand why women have not been used in research studies as much as their male counterparts like it is the studies take twice as long um like i've helped run studies that were on just female test subjects and from like an apparel side um designing designing jackets but it's it takes twice as long because you have to hit in the same cycle. And if you can't get people to come in during, you know, two times during this phase of their cycle, you have to wait to the next month for them Mm -hmm. to come in. Mm -hmm. And so it is very difficult, but that's not a reason to not make it important. And so I think there are studies that will be even older studies that are going to be revisited to get a better understanding if the, if it, if women respond the same way. And so I think that will be very interesting. And I do think there's going to be some mechanism, mechanism stuff that comes out of that um, that we might then all of a sudden understand the material better anyway as we revisit it with a different test pool. Um, so I'm really excited about that um, as a female athlete and as a, as a female athlete who's coaching. I think that's a really important I – don't, I don't feel like we've been – it's been this intentional neglect – um, I understand the cost that goes into this research, um, but I do appreciate people like the NIH and it's gotten better on the health side of things. It's gotten way better in health research, clinical research. Um, women are more represented in these big health studies that impact them. Things like um, chronic pain, um, uh, so like psych- psychological things, depression, anxiety, Women are much more represented now in those studies than they used to be, which is good because those things affect women at larger rates than men in a diagnostic setting. However, with exercise physiology that we have not had that pressure, Um, the NIH basically wasn't going to give grants if you didn't have gender equal studies. Um, We haven't had a bit, you know, there isn't a big grant giver in exercise physiology that's made the same statement. And so it's on researchers, it's on, it's on, you know, and I hate, for it to be on young female academics, to be the ones who make it important. Um, But it's going to be on the researchers and the companies who maybe are helping fund the research to make that an important thing. So although it's not like a, we're going to solve the mystery of cramping, or we're going to, you know, solve, I don't know, solve something else, I think it's important to um, get a better understanding of physiology and gender by understanding female physiology
0: more. And that's important. And that's ultimately going to help more people like across the board, if we can make sure everything is, even though we understand what's going on with everyone. Um, And that's something that's interesting that you bring up about research and just things that I don't think a lot of people do understand because you read these studies and you take it as, as fact, or you read it, you don't read the study. Most likely you read it from somewhere else, or you catch information from somewhere else. You just think that it's been vetted and it's this whole thing. You don't realize it's on College-aged bros and has nothing else to do with uh, like a- like any pay age or gender.
1: College-aged bros to do anything. It's anything. Great. It's great. <laughs> Test, the lab I was in in Vancouver, we did um, we tested survival suits. Mm. So we would put we'd put generally college-aged boys and um, college-aged men, if you technical, in um, survival suits that were designed for ships, um, and we put them in a, co- a pool full of really cold water, and we would do 24 and 48 hour long survival suit testing because they had to be cleared to be used on ships and i don't think we ever had a female test subject not for lack of trying but just because you couldn't pay them enough money to yeah,
0: I feel like i'm doing better things with well, my time, time. <laughs> it, it, hours. yeah um,
2: um so. but it, it,
0: and it's important like and you and you, you said there's you know the time element and with time increases the cost i'm sure too like it like everything that gets elongated it's more cost associated with that so um it is good that things are going to go back and kind of figure out retroactively like how these work across genders because i think that is that's huge
1: yeah and even ages too i think it's really important um hmm. miss out a lot of information on our older on older athletic populations um and i think in particular for endurance and in, and strength and conditioning studies that's going to become really important too because you know, at a certain age, you have, it hits women earlier than men, but you, you have like pretty dramatic mus- muscle loss. And there has, there's been some research, but I think that it, they deserve more research as a, as a going to be steadily aging athlete. I think we should all be like fired up about that research happening. Um, because hormone levels are different, right? We've mm. got post women, we've got men with lower testosterone levels. Um, you know, how like understanding how they respond or what the ideal strength and conditioning program is going to be for that population, I think, is important and is valuable on like a general health level, but also on a performance level. And we don't have a lot to go off of oftentimes when I'm working with, you know, a handful of athletes in their 60s. And that's, you know, the the studies on 22 year old men is not going to be always applicable to these guys.
0: Right. And then it kind of goes back again. It's like, well, I think this will work.
1: Oh
0: yeah. <laughs> I'm
1: I think this workload will work. And I think the biggest thing is for older athletes it's just been understanding that you need more recovery time in between hard efforts and like mm-hmm. figuring out the best way. So I've moved away from like a traditional seven day block or, you know, with athletes like a traditional week and looked at their training in a 10 day window or a 14 day window as far as how I space activity. And I think that's been really helpful as opposed to being like stuck in this like okay, with this one in seven days, we need a long run and we need an intensity session. And we need, you know, I think it's been nice to look at it outside of the traditional, like seven day calendar window.
0: Yeah. And the only reason it was a, it was like that is because of the calendar, right? Like yeah. because people were off on Sundays, they could run a little bit longer. And now maybe in this COVID world, people are, are home a little bit more. They can play around with it. Some, yeah. There's one guy who I coached the exact same thing. He's like, well, I'm home now, so I can train really whenever. And we did that. We spaced it out quite a bit more and he's been doing awesome so now it's time to kind of test that kind of stuff out for sure
1: yeah we've been testing too none of my athletes took big volume increases but they all are sleeping more and spending more time with their families and I think that's been the biggest boon of cutting out those commutes is not like oh now I can train 15 hours a week it's like oh now I can actually sleep eight hours a night and like we'll see huge performance gains adaptations from little like the like doing the little things as opposed to being like oh now I can do two long runs a week or like an <laughs> right. intensity session it's like, no 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 how about we sleep and we like you can like make sure you make family dinner now
0: and then whenever there's races we'll see how well you do whenever whenever they come around um well cool grant i don't want to take you all day so um what are some of your goals coming up this year are you adjusting on the fly or what do you got are you preparing for something as if it's going to happen or i don't really know what's going on
1: Yeah, so all of my races for the entire 2020 calendar, I just had stuff planned through the end of August, um, like going over for like the big UTMB week, um, kind of the standard, you know, and end of a lot of US ultra runners seasons. Um, So everything's been canceled. Um, I raced in February. And then was supposed to race in March was supposed to race in June, July and August. And Nothing exists now. Um, So like many of my athletes as well, we've shifted to like personal challenges. um, So FKT style stuff. So I will be um, making a go at at the Tahoe Rim Trail in not that long, actually, which is kind of scary. At the end of August, hopefully, as long as we get the right weather window. So 170, 172 miles, I think. Um, Chrissy Mowell has the record um in just under 48 hours and so that's that's the goal is to run a very long distance the longest i've ever run i've never run more than like 102 i want to say and so this will be a big a big jump up you know an all nighter type of scenario that i haven't i haven't done before so i'm really excited i've got a lot of athletes who race 200 mile races um so this is kind of my my chance to experience um what i've been putting them through so i've been it's been really fun cuz i've gotten to do a lot of um, a lot less like hard running workouts and a lot more like fast packing. So like an overnight fast packing trip where maybe we cover 50 miles in two days or 60 miles in two days. And we go and just like do a lot of hiking and running essentially with, you know, bigger packs than we'd normally run with, but smaller packs than you'd backpack with, mm-hmm. uh, to cover a bunch of terrain. And that's really fun. I get to be out in the mountains. Um, and I'm not doing track workouts, and there's something nice about that right now.
0: Right. How uh, how high up would that be? Like the whole time, will you be like incredible at an incredible elevation the entire time?
1: It's not. It's it's definitely much higher than I think. I I, bet, I think we're just above sea level here. I think it's technically downhill to Ocean Beach, so I'm probably at like four <laughs> feet or something. Right. Well, uh, let's see. Sixty four feet. I'm at sixty four feet above um above sea level. <laughs> So right now
0: is, as we speak
1: right now um uh, i go upstairs i gain a little bit but um so it will be higher than what i'm living at right now but we've been going up to the mountains um on weekends or during the week just to try to get in get in a long run up there um and it so is kind of moderate high um i'll spend a lot of time kind of in that like five to seven thousand foot okay. range the biggest thing is it's just gonna be it's really hard on the lungs because you're just like you're breathing in like dry dusty air for a long time and that can that can wreak havoc on you after a while so mm.
0: we'll see uh, well cool that sounds like a blast i think right that should be fun um <laughs> and where can people find you on like social or internet or um your website
1: yeah so i'm just corinne malcolm um it's kind of a funky smell spelling but we can i'm sure you have fancy ways of linking that but i have no I fancy name, just my first and last name um there aren't a lot of i'm lucky There aren't a lot of Corinne's and there aren't a lot of Corinne Malcolms, but I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. um, And my website is also www.corinemalcolm.com. So pretty easy to find me everywhere.
0: And the coaching website is CTS, right?
1: Yeah. So it's uh, Mm. www.trainright.com. And you can contact us through that. Um, There's also a contact button through my Instagram account that emails to my coaching email
0: address. So very cool. Awesome. Cran. Well, I appreciate you hanging out, dropping some awesome information. Things to be really helpful for people, especially this time of year. And, and um, when we're able to train and race a little bit more, I think it'll be very practical for them. So I'm going to hit stop on this, but we'll stay on the screen and it'll be good okay. to go. So just signing off. Thanks for hanging out.
1: Thank you.